Hello, and welcome to episode 39 of Prog Notes. My name is Destin. And I'm Drew. And today we are listening to Fear of a Blank Planet by Porcupine Tree. If this is your first time joining us, welcome to the show. We look to educate and inspire you to uncover and learn about progressive rock music. And we are very honored that you're with us today. We would love to connect with you, so please give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, or you can join our Discord chat server to talk with Drew and I, as well as many other fans of the show and Prog Rock. These links are in this episode's description. And we always want to say thank you before we begin to all of our patrons for helping this show and these episodes happen. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash prognotes. And if you'd like to discover more music, more progressive rock music, our Patreon will not let you down. So Fear of a Blank Planet is Porcupine Tree's ninth studio album, released April 16th, 2007. That's Drew's 11th birthday. And this is the second Porcupine Tree album we have featured on the show. Back in episode 12, we listened to In Absentia. So if you're a Porcupine Tree fan or looking to get into them, we do a bit more of a history of the band in that episode. So please go check that out. We will not be diving as heavy into the band history on this episode. But... All that to say, I'll still go through the members. Porcupine Tree consists of Stephen Wilson's vocals, guitars, piano, and keyboards, Richard Barbieri on keyboards and synthesizers, Colin Edwin on bass, and Gavin Harrison on drums. This album also features some additional musicians like Alex Lifeson from Rush on Anesthetize and Robert Fripp on Way Out of Here. John Wesley also brings backing vocals, and the London Session Orchestra is also on this record, and I believe he's used them multiple times as well. So... But before we get into our thoughts and analysis, Drew, what were the public's thoughts on this album? This was a very well-received album. I mean, Porcupine Tree has been popular in the scene of Prague for a long time, but yeah, uh, this one was was pretty significant in their career. And Essential was as well, which is why we covered that record. Yeah, more about it on that episode twelve. Uh, but it reached number one on the U.S. Billboard, um, number 39 in the U.K. charts, number 34 in Norway, number 21 in Germany. It sold over 250,000 copies worldwide. In 2014, readers of Rhythm magazine voted it the fifth greatest drumming album in the history of prog rock, which is really, really significant. Um, wow. It won the Album of the Year Award uh, in the 2007 Classic Rock Magazine Awards uh, in 2012. Uh, Pop Matters named Fear of a Blank Planet the best progressive rock album of the 2000s. In 2015, Rolling Stone ranked Fear of a Blank Planet as the 39th best progressive rock album of all time. And British magazine Prague ranked the album 18th on its list of the top 100 greatest Prague albums of all time. Uh, The track Sentimental was chosen as NPR's Song of the Day on June 4th in 2007, which is pretty interesting to me because I wouldn't think like NPR would be like NPR, you know, yeah. Hosting a, a, a porcupine tree song. But they did. This is really interesting. Um, and on Prague Archives, uh, it was the collaborator's top Prague album of 2007. And you know what I just realized? It was the same year that Snakes and, Arrow by, Snakes and Arrows by Rush came out. And as right. a huge Rush nerd, I honestly have to agree with the Prague Archives nominate like like you know award i i think that this beats snakes and arrows and this is coming from a mega rush fan yeah I think that this album is better overall um so anyways i concede to fear of a blank planet over snakes do you know and arrows. do you remember what the uh, the release date 
of Snakes and Arrows is? Do you know what year it came out or what day it came out? Like, did it come what out before came this out? album? Yeah, did it come out before this album or after this album? Because I want to know if they were, they must have been in the middle of the writing session when Steven asked Alex to play on the record, possibly. Yeah, they may have been in the middle possible. of writing that album. It, it says that, uh, you know, they recorded it in November and December of 2006. Uh, Rush for Snakes and Arrows. Okay. And they released it in May. So there must have been pretty long amount of time with like post and mixing. Oh, wow. Doing maybe a couple of touches here and there. Wow. Yeah. So it was, Interesting. Yeah. But yes, uh, for people who don't know, Alex Lifeson of Rush did play on this record, Porcupine Trees. Yep. Fear of a Blank Planet, he played a guitar solo in Anesthetize. It's the big, long, yeah. epic in the middle of the, the album. So, uh, yeah, this was really well received. I always love hearing what people say um, about the records that we do. Um, 4.5 out of 5 stars on all music. It's an aggregate score of uh, from 1,640 users. The official review um, was written by Camilla Collar and... Uh, they had this to say Wilson has a great sense of flow leading mournful ambient ballads into graceful crescendos and over long interludes that sway blissfully throughout rises and falls and I know that seems like a kind of boilerplate review but that to Mm -hmm. me captures a lot of this album and a lot of Porcupine Tree in general so we'll get into more of my thoughts on that later but uh, yeah his sense of flow is absolutely ridiculous and on on this album it shows as well uh, Prague Archives gave it an aggregate score of 4.26 out of 5. 56% of the people said it was a perfect album, 5 out of 5. And 29% gave it a 4 out of 5, which is also really great. So 85% of people um, who rated this on Prague Archives were like, yeah, this is a great album. Um, wow. This was a, a pretty salient point this person made. And I have to agree with them. Uh, you know, this is obviously opinion. We'll see. Um, a few years from now, whenever people name the most important progressive rock bands of each decade, the list would look something like this. Yes and Genesis in the 70s, Rush and Marillion in the 80s, Dream Theater in the 90s, and I think now it's safe to say that the t- from the 2000s, there won't be any doubts in which band to single out as the most important for our beloved genre, Porcupine Tree. And if that analysis was correct a few months ago, after the, after the release of Fear of a Blink Planet, now it's easy to say that it's the complete and absolute truth. Again. That's wow. subjective, but I have to agree. That yeah, I would have to decade kind of well. had the the prominent bands that that kind of defined or shaped the genre, pushed it forward, were the icon for prog rock, and in the two thousands, I would say Porcupine Tree because you yeah. know, I yeah, th- this was something that that Porcupine Tree you really kind of introduced me to Destin, and um, right, I I had heard them from all of my music friends who enjoyed prog as well. It was like Porcupine Tree, you got to check them out. You have to check. Yeah. Particularly, their their you know imprint on the 2000s, even though they had been around before that. But yep, really the 2000s is where they were making strides, and people were like, "Oh my gosh, all the albums in the 2000s are amazing," and all of this. So, um, so in general, people loved it. I always love to give the other side of the coin as well with the people who didn't like it and what they had to say. Honestly, I didn't read too many people who disliked it. Those that did dislike it really had some critiques about lyrics. Hmm. Some people I've seen on different forums and everything. Um, someone someone in Reason Ma- Magazine said, uh, lyrically, it's ridiculous. And if your grandmother was theming a prog rock album, it'd come out something like this. Wow. Um, 
uh, someone else on, on Reddit had said, I have a love-hate relationship. I thought this was hilarious. A love-hate relationship with uh, this song's lyrics. It's talking about the title track, which we just listened to, actually. On yep. one hand, the intention was to make the lyrics in the viewpoint of an edgy teenager, and Wilson succeeded at that. On the other hand, the intention was to make the lyrics in the viewpoint of an edgy teenager, and Wilson succeeded at that. Wow. So it's kind of like you did that successfully, but also it's edgy teenager sentimentality, and that can be kind of cringy sometimes, I think. so. Yeah, that um, whole angst mentality and the, the angsty lyrics kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess it's you know, worse, though, when it's coming from like the perspective of somebody who is writing from that first person perspective. But we all know that Wilson is not writing from a first person perspective. He's writing right. it from a character's perspective or this group of people right. that he's referencing throughout the album. So I guess that does give well, him a little bit of more <laughs> leash on the chain, I suppose. But yeah, no, absolutely. Now, here's my kind of thoughts on on the lyrics and everything uh, i i i do like the lyrics on the record i'm not in love with them i'm not gonna you know totally defend them till the ends of the earth yeah i think steven wilson is a good lyricist he doesn't hit me as hard as neil peart from from rush or even some pink floyd lyrics or lyrics by the beatles those resonate with me a little bit more but what porcupine tree does super well is creating these really intricate engaging soundscapes and they immerse you in their carefully crafted worlds. And I think that plays a factor in my enjoyment of the lyrics. If I heard these lyrics on their own or played by another band, I think I probably would have more issues with them. You know, I might cringe a little bit when, when you know, hearing these more. But the music that they make is so captivating and it successfully puts you in this dark headspace, which is supposed to for this record particularly. It makes you right. empathize with the generation that Stephen Wilson is portraying with this album. So the lyrics don't seem so distant to me. Because he's kind of got me in the world that he's built, which is what he's supposed to do. He does it. I mean, all of them, all of Porky Pantry does an amazing job of really putting you in this world that they're creating. That makes you empathize with some of the lyrics, I think, a little bit more. So, um, anyways, the, that, that was my take on it. Um, and I think that's kind of yeah. a segue into us talking about the concept of this, which will be a good, a good section that we'll talk about soon because... This is yeah. a, a really interesting album conceptually. I've talked for a while. What were you wanting to say, Dustin? <laughs> it's okay. No, I, I mean, I'm just processing what you're saying in terms of uh, the, the the concept and the lyrics and stuff like that. And you're right. I, I do agree with you with how he uses the lyrics. It's not just the music and the lyrics with the message. The, the music and the lyrics are the message. And he blends those two and uses both of those to to their advantage as a band. And I think you're, you're totally right when they, when, when you're, you, you, what you were just stating a, a moment ago. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to say that I agree, but you're right. We can segue now into more of the concept, because if you have not heard this record, you're probably wondering uh, what, it, what are we, what are we talking about in terms of the, the concept or whatever? So I figured that and we could probably just, is. and how dark yeah. it is. Yeah. So I figured that we could probably just open up with hearing from the horse's mouth himself, Stephen Wilson, on just a little clip that we found of him giving a little bit of a synopsis on this record. Check this out. I wanted to kind of write a whole album that was dealing with the whole issues now of download culture and specifically how it affects young people, kids. I mean, I think it affects all of us, but specifically the young generation that are being born into this era of information technology. I just wanted to ask the question, really, how is this affecting people? How is this affecting young people? How is it going to infect their, uh, affect and infect 
their ability to develop a sense of curiosity, develop a sense of passion about the world, about the possibilities of life. If you have everything so easily available, everything from music to pornography is just so easily available, how does that affect your, your kind of psychology? It gives this idea of, okay, now we're... That, that, what he uses, that term, is the information technology and how it's affecting mm -hmm. people. And I think that's a very right. blanket and general statement to say that really does kind of sum up this whole thing is the use of technology and information technology and how it's affecting young people. And we can we could stop at that, but we'll we'll go a little bit deeper into it. Did you have any notes or any thoughts on that before before I move on into my thing here? Um, I mean, there's a lot to discuss with this because this goes into something that is totally relevant to our culture today oh yeah now, everyone today i mean you know the fact that technology has really just absolutely exploded in its innovation and ingenuity within the last 20 years alone right i mean it's yeah, it's insane right. and destin i think just something to kind of also just uh, kind of a headline for this is is how prescient of an album this is Right. Yes. And you used I, I used the word prescient, and you used a, a basically a, a synonym which I also really enjoy, prophetic. Prophetic. Yeah. Yeah. When we were we were slightly discussing this before we we did the the episode, and uh, slightly. Yeah, it was about an hour and a half. <laughs> we, were oh, yeah, for, yeah, yeah. Like, we were talking. We were really for a bit. intrigued with this. <laughs> we were really interested. Um, I, I also wanted to to state that uh, just super quick. Um, I really enjoyed this record, like a lot of the people online, like a lot of the reviews and the critics. I really enjoyed this record. In fact, um, you'll hear if you check out uh, episode 12, uh, that was my first kind of like full through listening to an entire Porcupine Tree record. At that time, Destin had sent me a couple of their albums, not the entire discography, but a couple of albums. Yeah. This was the album that I listened to second most after In Absentia. Mm. Honestly, I may have listened to it more even if we weren't doing the, the, the episode on In Absentia. The episode. I was really drawn to this record a lot. Hmm. Um, so before knowing any of the concepts or before diving before into before knowing like, any of the, the concepts, the okay. music, the music was really captivating to me. And then, you know, learning more about this concept and listening more to the lyrics. And then of course the music that complements those lyrics and everything. Uh, yeah, this is a really captivating record. I think, yeah. um, it's, it's a little disturbing, but humans have an affinity for curiosity and things that are slightly disturbing. So it's, it's true. But, and but with this album too, it's also it's also very, um, like you said, relative to today's culture, and mm -hmm. very grounded in from the lyrical sense, which can can be a good thing, but interesting how uh, I, I guess the the word that I'm trying to the word that I'm thinking of here is the, uh, just easily comparable to reality of people today, even though this album came out in 2007 which is not that long ago but still it's, you can still relate to yeah. this record and I believe and you found stuff online yeah. comments of online people saying that oh my gosh yeah. that was me that was me when I was younger yeah. and that was me when I was a kid and yeah. so like people are really relating to the lyrics of this record and on that subject of information technology on Stephen Wilson's website stephenwilsonhq.com he has a, a written out description of the concept of this record and it says that the concept of the album was heavily influenced by Brett Easton Ellis's novel Lunar Park which side note here 
uh, Brett Easton Ellis is the man who wrote American Psycho, which that was later developed into the film featuring Christian Barrel. Uh, so yeah. this is a, he's he's a very controversial writer for for those who don't know. And going back into the um, into the quote here from his website, the lyrics deal with two typical neurobehavioral dis- developmental disorders affecting teenagers in the 21st century: bipolar disorder and attention deficit disorder. And remember that because I'm going to come back to this. And also with other common behavior tendencies of youth like escapism through prescription drugs, social alienation caused by technology, and a feeling of vacuity, a product of information overload by mass media. Stephen Wilson described the main character of the story as, quote, this kind of terminally bored kid anywhere between 10 to 15 years old who spends all his daylight hours in his bedroom with the curtains closed, playing his PlayStation, listening to his iPod, texting his friends on his cell phone, looking at hardcore pornography on the internet, downloading music, film, news, violence, etc. And so, like I said, Stephen mentions attention deficit disorder or, or ADD, and on the subject and the irony of this album centering around this condition, I found this interesting. Ble- Fear of a Blank Planet is the shortest porcupine shortest porcupine tree album since Up the Downstair in 1993, which I found quite hilarious in a way. Yeah. In fact, it's it's also the only Stephen Wilson solo full length record that is the only solo uh, Stephen Wilson full length solo record that is shorter than Fear is The Future Bites at least at this point in time of us recording this album. But The Future Bites is also an electronic album. So I know that said the concept is is based off of Lunar Park, but listen to this quote from American Psycho. Check this out, Drew. This is I found this to be interesting. This this is not even from the book that he's referencing. He's This is from American Psycho, which is a different book, same writer, but a different book. This is a quote from the book. There's an idea of a, of a Patrick Bateman some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable, I'm simply not here. Which I found quite similar to the lyric of the track that we just listened to, the title track of the album, I need to know that someone sees that, there's nothing left, I'm simply am not here. I found that to be interesting. Mm -hmm. It's a very that's yeah. that's almost I mean quite synonymous. I mean he's basically saying the same thing. I think it's this sense of and and you get this kind of throughout the the angst, the anxiety, the confusion, uh the disconnection that a lot of people feel yes. in general now. I feel like it's kind of, you know, stayed with a lot of people into their adulthood, but especially around that time and more think he's right um Stephen Wilson when he's saying that um because obviously I think he kind of took themes from that and kind of incorporated them into this because that quote was from Brett Easton yeah. Ellis, Brett Easton right yep Elliston um yeah Ellis, Brett Easton sorry, Elliston, wow. I believe. thinking of a restaurant in Nashville yeah. wow um I know <laughs> um but that sense of this disconnection anxiety angst all of that that carries over into adulthood, but a large part of that is definitely a product of this information overload. And it's this weird kind of, yes, we can connect with anyone at any time of day, basically can, but you don't, you feel still very disconnected and it's, it's hard to find a a typical, not typical, sorry, a genuine connection 
with with people and uh yeah you know you feel a lot of that angst yeah because and, it's it's almost like it's that illusion it's that illusion right, of connection right almost um which is kind of like the it's kind of like the wall right you know where it's like the, the connection of the music and the audience but also there's just this yeah. disconnection at the exact same yeah. time which is kind of the and way out of here you know, that's a is, very bad synopsis way of, out of here yeah. is a perfect example kind of the beginning where he's kind of sing talking almost he's kind of you know what i mean doesn't really have like a really yep. identifiable melody he's kind of talking a little bit yep. just just a little bit um you know and i don't like the questions how are you doing yep. today how's school going you know these kinds of questions you know he feels very isolated and alone and it's you know they you know there's obviously a struggle and a you know dissatisfaction with being alone but at the same time he doesn't want to take he doesn't want to connect the character in the song and um that's an interesting thought. I've ha- I've never actually made that connection uh, with with the beginning of that song, with like how he's just sort of talk talking mm-hmm. in a way that that sort of thing. That's really interesting. I never I've, I've never made that connection. Yeah, that connection. That's an interesting thought. You know what? What I find also so interesting about this album and, and the topic and is is in the release date of the album. I mean, like we were saying before, we're we're are we not seeing this type of behavior nowadays? Mm-hmm. It, Absolutely, it's incredible with with this that idea, and I found uh, did some research just on the digging of kind of the generational uh, sort of analysis and stuff like that. And according to Tech Explorist, in the millennial generation, which are people born between 1981 and 1996, and I'm referencing this generation because Stephen references 10 to 15 year olds as part of the concept which would have been the age of millennials in 2007. So that's the only reason why I'm using the millennial generation. 31% of millennials say that their biggest fear is their phone running out of battery. And 24% said that their biggest fear is having no Wi-Fi or data. Furthermore, Thomas Insel, former director of the National Institute of Mental Health, he said this in 2017. He said suicide rates per 100,000 people have increased to a 30-year high. Substance abuse, particularly of opiates has become an epidemic now as mentioned before this album was released on april 16th 2007 this is before the launch of the first iphone icloud instagram and just 202 days after the public launch of facebook and as i was reading these lyrics i couldn't help but just see like that and that word that you said that i used before this is a prophetic album it's a prophecy of what's happening today and what we're seeing today with how people are, are, well, are getting sucked into yeah. this idea of technology. It's funny and, because... Uh, being isolated. Well, it's funny because I, I, I didn't... I really do think it is prescient and, and prophetic because at around that time, I don't feel like technology was dominating my life as it is now. No. And has to. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was just, it was a new thing, and people were so intrigued by it. And it's like, oh, wow, this is super cool. But it wasn't maybe it's the way, to the level that you were saying. Maybe today. it's the way that I was raised. Maybe it was, you know, but I, I, you know, I had technology around. I had my laptop in high school for papers and terms, so I wouldn't have to go to the library or stay after school in the lab to write up papers and everything. Yeah. But um, it just didn't dominate my life and now it does and it's funny that you mentioned that like their biggest fear is running out of wi-fi or their phone battery and like part of me thinks when i was a kid like that that's that's ridiculous like you know you're not afraid of dying you're not afraid of public speaking which was a huge fear i think 
even just a couple decades ago, like my biggest fear is public speaking, that kind of stuff. Now it's not having Wi-Fi. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like several years ago, I would have been like, oh, that's that's ridiculous. Kind of. I mean, that's such a, a trivial thing. Now I'm like, that's not a ridiculous fear now because you have to have yeah. connection with everyone. And even before the pandemic, even before COVID-19, businesses ran off yeah. of email, right? All of this, you're sending files. And especially in my line of work with entertainment and everything, you're sending files back and forth all the time. I mean, you yeah. have to have the internet. You have to now. It's not just a, a luxury or something that's nice to surf around and watch goofy videos, which you can do with it. But it's also how life runs. It is. And it's just kind of, yeah. it's just bizarre. But yeah, having said that, we kind of need it, but it's this necessary evil at the same time. And I think almost anyone would agree. It's like, oh my gosh, I've seen crazy stuff on the internet and it can be destructive. And it is. I mean, it absolutely is. And I think what he says here is totally true. We're surrounded by all of this information to have at our fingertips in a second. That has yep. a detrimental effect on us. What, what did he, he says here, this is Stephen Wilson. They have access to everything. You know, yeah. When I was a kid, I wanted to discover new music. I had to save the money in my pocket and search the record stores. And I think it's in human nature that the things that come easily to us, we don't really appreciate. And it's the things that we have to search for and work hard and invest our time and money and energy into. Those are the things we appreciate. I don't read nearly as much as I used to as when I was a kid. And when I do read, I find it's very hard to concentrate on a book for anything more than two or three pages. And that never used to be the case for me when I was a teenager. But now I find there's so much distraction in the modern world that my connection, my sorry, concentration span is that much shorter. My attention span is that much shorter. Um, so, the, I mean, you know, and, and he was saying for kids yeah. growing up, being born into this world, all they'll ever know is how easily available everything is. It's a real deep concern for me, and that's why I wanted to explore that subject in this album. Technology is a wonderful servant, but a horrible master. And I really believe that just sums up everything pretty nicely, is that... It is, it is a horrible thing to have run your life. It's a great thing to have help, you know, help your life. Technology is a wonderful thing that we could use to become more efficient and all of that. But when it comes to your master and when you cannot, like when you're addicted to that, that phone and addicted to the technology and addicted to every single time you hear the notification bell, it's almost like this just Pavlov's reaction to pick it up and look at it. And you catch yourself. I've caught myself doing this sometimes where I hear that thing go off. I hear that bell. And I'm like, oh, what is that? And I'll reach down for my phone. I'm like, what am I doing? Yeah. Like, I'm I'm in a situation right now where I don't need to be looking at my phone, but the, it's this reaction and gut reaction. Oh, it is muscle memory. Like that. And it's, it's muscle such, memory now. Dude, it really is. It really is. It is like and I just involuntary find it, like, almost. Yeah. It's super, it's forlorn, but incredibly fascinating. It's, it's also really interesting going back to the album that, I mean, you were saying that this is the shortest one and he's criticizing attention deficit disorder but i don't think he was doing that as like a joke he really enjoyed i don't think yeah no, he wanted it to be shorter and i don't think it was because it it's it's really bizarre um because i think that he he what do you say wilson said that the idea was to make an album that could be listened to in one setting in contrast to some band's tendency to make very long records that do not maintain the attention of the listener so it's kind of ironic yeah. because he's saying, oh, people don't have attention spans, right? And, that you know, that's yeah. a problem. So it's like, oh, you would think, okay, I, you know, I, 
I enjoy making longer records because you, you should be able to maintain your attention, right? Like you should be able to hold your attention longer, but he makes the shorter and he wants to make it shorter. I don't think just to make a point about that, but because he thinks that that's musically just in general, not just the topic of this whole concept. Yeah. Just in general, musically, he's like, you know, people will like it more. I like it more when it's a little bit shorter. He was actually talking about some bands that he likes, the Mars Volta and Tool. He says, I really enjoy those bands, but they're too long. Their albums are straight up too long. And that's in his opinion. He was like, wow. they're, they're too long. And I, to me, I was like, that's just really funny because, yeah, a lot of your records are over an hour. And they used to be like, 40 yeah, dude, I was about to be to like, uh, Stephen, your albums are like 60 I minutes. Know, that's why I was I think, really like, kind of confused with this. But I have to yeah, say, that's hilarious. I agree with him. I didn't think about that until I read that quote, yeah. but I was like, you know what? You're totally right. I mean, there are exceptions to the rule. I like a really solid, amazing double album as much as the next guy. The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, The Wall, The White Album by The Beatles. Like all of these double albums are amazing, right? Yeah, yeah. But those were kind of one of a kind, right? Those bands kind of had their big double album and then they did the regular 40 to maybe 55 minute albums. And they didn't do these hour and a half albums that, you know, I have to agree. It's It gets to a point where it's like, it's rare that you'll find a double album where you're like, this is start to finish. Fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Yep. At least with a lot of modern bands. And maybe I'm just being a little biased there, but I have noticed that. That's just something in my opinion. No, I, I would, I would agree. I would agree. I think anything that's over that, that hour mark. Yeah. I think is to me is hitting yeah. that point where it's starting to get a little hairy now where there's a there's a little bit of uh maybe maybe stuff is just going on a little bit too long or maybe yeah. there's just too many songs and i can't honestly and i i'd have to go and think about this this would actually be a really interesting thought experiment for me is to go and find an album that is over a, the 60 minute mark that i find to be absolutely flawless like absolutely just hands down not a single track that is that is bad. I could listen to the thing all the way through and have absolutely no problem with it. Because right now I'm trying to think of something and all of my favorite records that I know of right now are normally around that 45 minute mark. They're like the typical A side, B side record, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, maybe some 50 minutes. Yeah. At least in some no, of the, I agree. You know, my top five records that I'm thinking of right off the top of my head. I can't think of anything that's over that hour mark. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I challenge, I'm gonna challenge everybody who's listening to go find huh. maybe you already know, and that's an easy answer for you, but See if you can find a record that's over 60 minutes that you find to be absolutely flawless and then send it to me. I'd love to hear it. And uh -huh. also, would, you know, I'm curious. So There's a lot of music out anyway. there, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm but sure what do that. we know? This is all just shallow proclamations. It's all just misinformation. <laughs> uh, Sorry, punny. That's really punny. Ah. Uh, ah. Uh, shoot. shoot. Yeah. Um, this, this was... Um, yeah, this is a dark album. It really is. Um, you look at the concepts and the lyrics and even the, you know, the music that they complement it with. It's very heavy. Um, but uh, yeah, kind of even even that. the album title, even the album title. Right. I mean, you you, you found some uh, some information oh, on the yes. album title that was yeah. something that we discussed very well, briefly, which. Uh, yeah. And I don't want to talk about that too much into this, because to be honest, I, I am not you know, well-versed enough in this subject to really talk on it with any sort of authority or anything. But I did not realize this until doing a little bit of research because I'm not a hip hop fan, but there was a very, I mean, fans of music who like hip hop will be like, yeah, how have you not heard of that 
album. It's like, well, that's not my genre. I just don't listen to it that much. Yeah. Um, but Fear of a Black Planet came out in the early 90s. I believe it was 91 or 92. And this was by Public Enemy, very popular hip hop group starting out, um, you know, in the early days of hip hop, right? This was a very formal, yeah. sorry, formative album, I think, for that entire genre. And Stephen Wilson had mentioned that. He says, crud, I even like, like the early hip hop. It was really innovative. They were tackling some subject matters that definitely needed to be addressed, especially with race. And particularly, Fear of a Black Planet did that. I mean, I think a lot of their records did. Um, but that one, I mean, that title alone is like, oh my gosh, that, that's that's a really bold statement, but it's, it's, it's true. I mean, there's a lot of racism that was affecting all parts of the world, but particularly this was an American group, so you know, America. Um, yeah. And everything. And um, it was... Yeah, it was handling a lot of injustices that were going on towards the black community here in America. Um, Stephen Wilson really kind of, he, he was kind of, you know, that was a really important um, album for, you know, the subject of race and racism and prejudice. I kind of took that to make fear of a blank planet to tackle the subject of a generational issue. You know, not, not, not a race issue, but generational um and everything because like you're saying vacuity was something that you had you had mentioned earlier a word yeah but he was afraid of this vacuous kind of empty numb generation because of this overload of of technology of, of information coming from anywhere and everywhere and as much as you want whenever you want it um and i just thought that was really interesting that he took inspiration from fear of a black planet and i did not listen to the whole thing i listened to about half of it um, really interesting. I can totally understand the appeal. Hip hop is not my genre. We listen to prog rock uh, mostly here. <laughs> That's what but, we do here. That's what we well, do here. Well, on the show, yeah, obviously, definitely. We listen but, to prog uh, rock. But this is definitely an album that's worth your time, especially because it's you know it was important in music history in general. So uh, it was by Public yep. Enemy um, in the early Public 90s. Enemy. But, um, wow. Yeah. There's a there's a a, a book. That I, and I believe I mentioned this to you before. Um, there's a book by this this author named Ruth Haley Barton, and uh, she wrote this thing about ten signs that you're moving too fast through life, and how we need to <laughs> slow down because this information information technology is having to uh, it, it's sped up everything. It's, I think it's I think it's part of the anxiousness and the anxiety that's underlying is this this rush of we're getting more efficient, but we feel like we have less time. Which I believe is such a potent statement in our in our world today, and that was one of the three things that, or one of the ten things, excuse me, that that she mentioned was this this sense of numbness in that book. Mm -hmm. it, it was it was this you just don't have this capacity to feel anymore. Like you don't have any any emotion left over for somebody else. It's I think that's like one of the biggest threats to our our our, our, our culture today, at least in the American culture. I can't speak to other parts of the world, but this idea of Apathy, this just sense of like yeah. being apathetic about everything, and I, I really do think that's just this sense of like having to rush so much, and we have so much information that I personally don't believe that we were designed to be able to take in. I don't think we were designed to take in this much information that we have, and that's just caused this sense of rush and anxiety and restlessness and irritability and numbness. That, like I said, it all goes back to the, just the prophecy of this album that is incredible to me um just out even outside of like the music standpoint this is a staple album 
outside of just the progressive rock because just it was released in 2007 the year the iphone came out mm -hmm. like that's so funny to me yeah and it's kind of scary but props to steven for you know wanting to bring that up and and identifying it early and how the downhill slope that we've been taking since then has caused this generation and i think i think nowadays in the workforce you were mentioning that in, in terms of the uh, like in work and in the workforce, how technology is so available. You know, we need it essentially, especially in your, in your line of work, especially mm -hmm. uh, with like file sending and and even in the music industry now too, it's people sending stuff across the internet and um, all of that, all of that stuff. It really does just perpetuate this. It's 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 bizarre. It's it's incredible to me, but it's crazy. So anyway, yeah, the concept of this record is quite dark, but. Uh, dark but grounded yeah I, I, and I'll have to say um, musically it's it's an excellent record too and just like we discussed on In Absentia um, the the keyboard work here is amazing it's absolutely amazing oh my the goodness. atmospheres and the textures yeah. that Richard Barbieri is making I mean all the musicians are phenomenal so you know that's typically how it is with just prog rock bands in general but uh, Porcupine Tree, they're all they're all phenomenal musicians. They're all great. I mean, I know we're gonna get to Gavin in, in a second. I'm sure we we already talked him up on episode 12, but he really is a phenomenal drummer. But right now, I want to talk about uh, Richard Barbieri and the way that he constructs these these yeah these atmospheres, these very elegant atmospheres. Yeah. And each song is distinct while still retaining the same mood and you know cohesiveness uh, of the album. So. Uh, I, I, I guess I don't have very much more to say other than that, but it's one of those things that when you experience it and you hear it and you really kind of shut everything out and you're just listening to the music, it's really impressive how it just, it's such an ensnaring set of sounds that he is employing. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's really crazy. And the great thing about this this record and Porcupine Tree, I think in general, is uh, the, the remarkable combination of metal rock and psychedelia there's some really yes. heavy metal moments on here, but they're not overwhelming. I mean, and this is coming from two hosts that aren't like crazy into the whole metal side of it. Straight metal kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. straight metal. Like in general, our, our tastes go back to the prog pioneers, more, I guess, symphonic prog. But um, but to me, it's just the right amount of, of, of metal, in, in my opinion. It, it'll because it builds to that because it builds to that intense really raucous mm -hmm. hard insane crazy moments yeah they are balanced by these really elegant kind of softer moods that still they're softer in their i guess um their volume in their dynamics but that doesn't yeah. mean they're happy they're still very dark they're still You're very right. foreboding and scary and everything so um, yeah. And then sometimes they're kind of happy and uh, maybe not even dark and suspenseful, but just kind of, uh, we, I think we use this word a lot in episode 12, but melancholic. It's kind of sad. Yes. You know? Um, so they, they do a really good job of emotionally placing you somewhere. Um, and I, I really appreciate that because all these guys could go nuts if they wanted to, but they don't. Yeah. They serve the music, right? They serve what makes a yep. really good song. So yeah that's that's good that's good we have to lend a hand to richard barbieri on that and i would agree that's one of the biggest things that i find i i call him an innovator 
really from the keyboard stance because I, I think it, it that shift of hearing something that was from the 70s and all of that, which was really more about that virtuosic playing. Uh-huh. It was kind of, and even today, I, I think there is that sort of sense of, of that and in and, and the keyboard realm, maybe even also in the guitar realm as well. But I think people under, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I don't know because I'm a drummer. I can't really speak to this, but there are so many sounds available. There are so many things that you could do mm-hmm. on a pedal board. There are so many patches and things you can create on a keyboard that people just want. They just load up a, they just load up a sample. So let me just load this patch up and then let me just go nuts on it. And that was kind of the, that 70s sort of vibe was this yeah like load up load up the electric piano load up the moog load up the organ let's go nuts and and just go nuts with it and with this there is not anything that that is on this record i think that is virtuosic in the terms of richard going nuts on the keyboard or playing something on the yeah, piano that's it's, incredibly it's, fast or yeah, it's super not Keith weird Emerson or, or anything and no, yeah, we're not we're not listening to to yeah to Keith Emerson or any or Tony Rick Banks Wakeman. or yeah. Rick Wakeman. We're not listening to any of those guys. But what he does so well is that he just creates something that fits the song and the in the mood so well. And it's nothing virtuosic, but it's so just. It, I don't know. I can't oh, think of genius. any other word other than it just. But it's absolutely fits. It's genius. The perfect puzzle piece to to what they need for this band. Yeah. No, hundred percent. It's awesome. And I know, I know Steven is like that too, because he will be the first one to tell you that he's not the best guitar player. He knows that. He said that in all kinds of different interviews. If you go and listen to them, he said that many times. But what he knows is that if I'm not going to be the greatest guitar player, that means I can, I, I don't need to try and be the best guitar player. I will just create sounds and things that give this particular mood and, and, or a, uh, or a style or a sound they, or something they that push fits a little further. Subject. And that's what still makes them yes. progressive. And, and so a lot of the progressive rock when it was first coming out was kind of the virtuosity here. Um, yes. And with this, like you say, the parts that they lack with that, they make up for in this mentality of, let me push, let me push a little bit further. Let me see what this sound could yeah. be like if I tweak this tiny little setting here. Ooh, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. And that's also an element of the early pioneers is that all of them were have, having this sense of this is new technology. Let's play around with it. Let's make a cool sound. Yeah. I think that's gotten more and more throughout the years, especially with people like Porcupine Tree and other artists who are making these synthesized sounds that are very unique. And that's what they did starting out. And then, of course, it became kind of like common. It was like, you know, that keyboard sound I kind of heard on a Yes album and I also heard on an ELP album. You know, their playing's different. The musicians are different. Their compositions are different, but that's kind of similar. Right. So they start expanding and doing more. And technology, we were just talking about technology can be an yep. amazing thing too, right? Now we're making all of these really cool sounds that are unique, you know, completely unique to someone testing around and fiddling with those knobs a little bit more. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to take this down a little bit. Oh, what if I did this? And finally getting to that one where it's like, yeah, that's really interesting. And seeing how it fits into yeah. the rest of the song. A lot of it's experimenting. And that's what Progressive Rock was doing early on. It was just kind of like, yeah. let's just throw something at the wall, see if it sticks. You know? So Yeah. No, definitely. Um, and even on that subject, even on that subject of, of the ADD and the attention deficit disorder, and that, that whole idea of not having, uh, you know, like, I think, attention spans, like having shorter attention spans. I feel like now, 
in in the modern day of musicians, people are well, A, the access to be able to record anything has gotten incredibly easy. Like it's super easy for anybody to go out and spend three hundred dollars and then start making music on their little on their pad or whatever. Like get a little MIDI keyboard and get their little uh interface and they can plug up their guitar into it. But I feel like now it's not as much about that creation and that tweaking. It's more about like, oh, I heard John Mayer's tone online on YouTube and I want to match that tone. Or I heard this keyboard sound or like, oh, I want to make it, it sound vintage. So I'm well, going to get a Mellotron patch well, or something and like going that back and to, load it up. To kind of this, are you moving too fast? It takes time. Time. It takes a lot yes. of time. And I understand if you don't have that time. I mean, then it's just at a point of, where are your priorities at? I mean, if it's not, then yeah. that's cool. But if you want that, if you want to be like super innovative, and you really want to test around with that, it takes a lot of time and a lot of failure. It does. It yep. takes a lot of, mm, that's not what I was looking for. Or I thought it was, and now I'm going back to it. And no, that's not what I was looking for. And it's yeah. like, it's it takes a lot of time to sit down and not only create something, but then to put another set of ears on it. I mean, you know, put yourself yep. in a different headspace and listen to it differently than the creator or having someone else come in and do that. It takes a lot of time, you know, a lot yeah. of time. Oh, it's totally, and, you know, it's totally right. People Man, are I, I just told... in general being like, hey, when's the band going to come out with the next album? I'm like, don't rush. No, them, no single, single. It's the next single. Out, hey, when's the next, sing- when's the next song coming out? Do not rush them. It takes a lot of time. And you can tell the people who take the time. You can tell yes. you're like that must have taken them a while to get that just right. But I can tell it was just right. Cause for me, it's just right. That's the perfect moment yes. of the song that was mixed perfectly. Yeah. That was, you know, they experimented with different sounds and they did a bunch of takes. That was the take. That was perfect. That kind of deal. So anyways. Yeah, no, it was, it's so good. And I know we've kind of rabbit trailed on this for a little bit, but I, I, I feel strongly about this because I love that idea of that experimentation. And I love that idea of, not just loading a patch and oh that's it like i like that and but like go into it more the these softwares and these instruments and stuff like that i tell people all the time if i could play guitar oh my gosh i would mm-hmm, i would mm-hmm. be a, a i would be a pedal nerd because there's so many of them out there and everybody's walking in with their hall of fame and their big sky and their blue sky and all of this stuff and i'm like guys there are billions of reverb pedals out there Mm-hmm. And I know, I know this is one of the most popular one, but like, it's money that, too. Yeah, it is money. It is money. I just don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm just not the type of guy that <laughs> if I see, if I see 30 people using a freaking hall of fame, a hall of fame reverb pedal, I'm not going to buy that pedal because I want one that sounds unique or want one that sounds like, you know what? I don't know, man. I don't know. I know I'm rabbit trailing on this a little bit and we'll come back to the episode now, but <laughs> That this is an encouragement to all musicians. I hope maybe it's an encouragement to just like take the time and and be patient because you can't create an album like this without being patient. I just know it. I know that it wouldn't. This album wouldn't just. Well, and it's not out of the fact, box. It's not an album out of the box for the, the yeah. Well, fun fact for people, uh, you like Porcupine Tree. Uh, they wrote this material uh, on tour. So and they played it. They well, they wrote it before they even went on tour. They tested it out on tour before even recording this. So a lot of, I mean, you know, albums are all different, right? They're all they're all very different. But a lot of a lot of times, I think of it like, oh, they took some time. They were in the studio. They wrote for a while. They were in this isolated area. And some albums were like that. 
Um, this one was not. This one, they actually gauged the reaction of these songs before even going into the studio. They went on a tour and did wow. like 10, 10 European shows and 10 American shows. And these songs wow. were by and large already done. And they were like, okay, by the time we're in the studio, I've already played Sentimental like a bunch of times. I've already played My Ashes a bunch of times. Now it's just about getting it right. But they gauge the reaction of how they thought they should tweak it with the audience and everything. So I think that's pretty interesting is by the time they were in the studio, they were all pretty comfortable recording this. Yep. So, you know, you know, another band that's actually very similar to that process is Dave Matthews. 100% when yeah, they're playing yeah, yeah. stuff on their circuit and all of their college, you know, those college well, parties and stuff like that that they did in the yeah. 90s and the house parties and all that stuff. And then like yeah. people were singing the music before the album even came out. Like people yeah. just know the music and know the song. Well, that's yeah. one of my, so my favorite been... live tracks from Dave is one that he did like what, 12 years before it came out. I don't know, something like that. Dude, he did, I, he did I don't know. the idea of you and there was a live version of it. And at the very beginning he goes, this is kind of a song. It's kind of a new song. Hope you enjoy it. And then 12 years later, it goes onto a studio album. Yeah. It's incredible. Which well, I it was come was tomorrow, right? Yes. Yeah. It was the album. Yeah. That yeah. Was on. Yeah. So cool, man. But anyway, let's, let's get, let's kind of change subjects. Cause we'll keep, we'll keep talking about this for a while. Um, if we wanted to, but, uh, I, I wanted, I, I wanted to specifically talk about the B sides of this album because they released a B-side of Fear of a Blank Planet called No Recurring. And the No Recurring essentially came out as a as an EP. But I was curious, and I, and I asked you this, I think, on the phone, about this idea of why weren't these songs included on the album besides the fact that Stephen wanted to have a shorter record. He, I knew that they wanted to be a shorter record because I adore the songs that are on this EP. If you haven't heard it, I would highly recommend checking it out personally. I also personally enjoy the live versions of all of those songs, which is on Anesthetize, the live album, or the live DVD or whatever. But yeah, I just wanted to, to talk briefly about some of those B-sides on that record. So one of one of the reasons was because, like you had mentioned, length. And I can expand yeah. upon that a little bit more later. Uh, but another reason, he says, um, there are a couple reasons as to why that happened. The first and most important reason for me is that Fear of a Blank Planet was very much a conceptual work as I mentioned to you before, it's a very lyric-driven album. All the songs on Fear of a Blank Planet relate to the same concept and theme. The four songs on No Recurring are somewhat different, barring Normal, which is essentially an alternate version of Sentimental on Fear of a Blank Planet. Um, the songs yeah. on No Recurring didn't quite fit into that cycle of the album, both lyrically and conceptually. So that's the first reason. And then he goes on to say that uh, the length of it. Um, and, and that's where I mentioned earlier, this is where he mentioned where he was like, I really enjoy Tool and Mars Volta, but a lot of the times albums are just too long and I didn't want to do that with this record. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do like, it was interesting because if you haven't heard No Recurring, they they almost, because I remember believe, I remember seeing online that when Stephen was writing, starting to write this record, I believe the two, one of the songs that was already done was Normal, which is on the beat, which is on B-side. And Normal has the same chorus as sentimental and i think what they did is they reworked it to create sentimental and that was on the on the album but then also there's a part in what happens now that is also in anesthetize i found it interesting yeah. how they're almost like using the same riff yeah. or using the same chorus in a different context in a different song that was incredibly unique unique to me and um honestly sometimes sometimes i almost prefer normal to sentimental and 
certain in certain capacities. I no, do. Love I agree. Them both. I, I, I really, agree. I really like them both. But uh, but yeah, the riff that that acoustic riff of normal is is insane. Uh, and I also really love the end of that. The uh, wish I was old and a little sentimental. And yeah. just that callback almost to the other track. I, I, I don't know. I just find it interesting yeah. how those, no, those cool. songs kind of play into each other. It's definitely worth, if you enjoy this record, it's definitely worth checking out the the nil recurring because there are some similarities, but you can see where they took some inspiration. And, oh, I tweaked this uh, riff a little bit, but we're going to use it in, in the full-length album with Fear of a Blank Planet. It's cool to kind of compare those those two. Yeah. So, and it's not yeah, super I, long. I find it's, it's an EP. So. Yeah, exactly. I think it's like 35 minutes or something like that. Yeah. Absolutely worth um, but checking out. There's there's some good stuff on there, and every single one of those songs is on that live DVD, except for no recurring, the the live DVD slash CD, no no recurring or, or sorry, uh, anesthetize, and uh, which they performed all of Fear of a Blank Planet, and then three of the four tracks that's on no recurring, and uh, personally, I think all of them sound a lot better than the studio tracks. But you know, I think I said that on In Absentia. I'll say it again. I'm just that guy who likes their live versions better. But anyway, um, so musically, as we were going to talk about this record, we uh, wanted to go back to something we haven't done in a while. It's been a while since it's been just you and me on the show. We've it been has. doing a bunch of bunch of different interviews, and it, it's been a lot of fun. But now we get to actually do like a fun little segment that we haven't done in, in quite a while. And so why don't we why don't we go back? And and do delve it or shelve it again for this record. How about that? Let's do it. I'm I'm so excited. Let's do it. Here we go. This is delve it or shelve it. Delve it or shelve it. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, if you didn't hear the previous episode, we did this on we did this on the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway Genesis. Uh, that one we did five moments that we loved and I think two moments that we didn't like on the record each. This is a shorter album, much shorter album. And for the sake of time, we're going to keep it a little bit shorter. We're only going to do three Delvet moments, three moments each, right? We each had our own list. Yes. Three moments that, uh, we really enjoyed that we just geek out over. We really love and really enjoy. And then we're going to do only one shelvet moment, which is something I was like, that can be shelved. That's, that's not that great. That's. You know, everything has uh, its things that can be improved or that we're not really jazzed about. So, uh, yeah, who who wants to to go first? Why don't you go ahead? Why don't you go ahead and go first? And we should also mention we should also mention we don't know each other's Delvin. Oh Shelvin yeah, this is fun. We don't know. We don't know similar, each other's similar. Yeah, we had someone. We had someone the... pass it though, saying you didn't overlap. So they are unique version uh, or moments. Yes. There's yeah, no so we are sure apparently. that there, uh, no, there's no overlap, but we got a third party. We don't know each other's lists, and this is gonna be fun because we both, as you could tell, we both really, really enjoy this record, and uh, and so we'll get to geek out some over the over the section. So I'll play, I'll play record. yours. All right, I'll play so yours. This is my first. first one, and I'll go ahead and say that this is from the crown jewel of the album, in my opinion, not in Stephen oh. Wilson's opinion. In my opinion, the crown jewel is the big epic, which is anesthetize. So this is a moment from anesthetize. Oh, dear God. Wait for the drums. Dude, it's so good. It's, it's. 
And what makes it is that like electric keyboard, that distorted electric keyboard, oh, and then this. I know. Yes. Oh, dude. yes. It's an absolutely brilliant part of the album that is so groovy and dynamic. You've got this synthetic type of hi hat that it's so great going back and forth. It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect right there in the back, keeping this constant pace. This is this constant rhythm, you know. Then you've got this low, growling, distorted guitar with that weird 5 8 rhythm. Which, by the way, is that same riff you were talking about earlier, which is in what what happens now? What happens now? Yes, they use that same. What one, happened? By now? the way, fun yep. fact. Yep. Um, uh, and you, you've got this like, yeah, that dark feeling with that. That really kind of gruff, ominous kind of. That's what I get from that guitar. Oh man, it's like this territorial Dude, dog circling his turf, like intimidating yep. but not attacking just yet. Then you've got this <laughs> mellow keys. Oh man, these mellow key chords with Richard Wright kind of sound. It's really mellow, really groovy, very psychedelic, and awesome. And then that super open droning lead keys in the background that you were just talking about. Yeah, almost shrieking, kind of far away. There are so many elements here that just blend together so well and give this eerie yet groovy aura about them. And yeah, sorry, that was my geek out first album moment. It's incredible. And I love the, uh, in that, so on that electric keyboard, you know, he has that electric keyboard, but, but there is a distortion on that keyboard. Like it's very slight. It's not just clean. It's not like the beginning of sheep or anything, but like, yeah, it's got that sort of distortion to it. And you can hear when he adds more velocity to those keys because the distortion gets a little bit gruff, more like harder and harsher as he hits those keys. It's such a, if you go and listen to it, you can listen to the feel. You can listen to the feel of how he's playing those notes because you can tell with how much, oh dude, it's just, it's so delicate. It's incredible, but yeah, Yeah. that's absolutely. dynamics. And I think this band is honestly one of the ones that I would think of first when I think of just dynamics. Because Dude. they really build to this intense yes. energy, especially later on in Anesthetize, which I didn't put on my list. I don't know if it's on yours. When it gets to that really heavy metal section and like around the 10 or 11 yes. minute mark, where there's literally a couple bars where it's full on distortion and crashes and lots of double kicks. Then it goes back yep. down to something mellow and it's just, it, it really flows super well. Again, what I talked about super early on in the episode, flow, that sense of flow dynamics yes. just genius anyways yeah i've talked a so lot great. what is your first delve that's moment? so great all right here we go this is my first delve moment which is from the title track fever blank planet nice oh yeah oh yeah those oh yeah yeah and the bells the bells oh Man, yeah, I totally see why you picked this. Yup, dude. I, I, see I, what I love about it. Oh, wait, wait, wait. wait. Here we go. Yeah. Genius, dude. That is unbelievably yeah. genius. That transition to go into that is so great. But what I love about this so much is that it is how light. It feels at first, like with the bells and the little with that little yeah. keyboard in the background, and just yeah. that that can that consistent 
that consistent key, uh, guitar riff. I'm, a, I'm an arpeggio nut. So, you know, anytime I hear, I love Alex Lyson's arpeggios. I love Stephen Wilson's arpeggios yeah, and I a lot too. of this stuff. So I love that stuff. I and then too. that like Barbieri's like mystical kind of sounding key patches in there that yeah. that's, that's going on. But then it almost builds up with this. And I describe it as almost like a nine inch nails, like digital sounding bass distortion. You yeah. know what I'm talking about? Where it's the, like, it has this sort of like yeah. deep, but it's, it's, it feels totally natural. It feels so strong. And then to top it off is when it goes straight into that drum fill, that which drum is, fill. I'm not even gonna, I'm not even going to get into the, the idea of that, but it's like a paradiddle diddle without the last diddle. And he's using this whole thing and it, oh my gosh, it's so good. Gavin, total, man. yeah, total I delve mean, moment. Gavin's. And actually, this is perfect because this will go into my second Delvet moment, which is from uh, oh. Sleep Together. That. Uh-huh. What a genius, dude. And honestly, that's kind of it. I mean, you know, it goes into the verse, but when the drums come in with that bell and kick drum, and and then it's followed by this, you know, this simple yet really powerful backbeat. I'm telling you, I love that kind of stuff. It's a really similar kind of feeling I get when with the drum beat on "When the Levee Breaks" by Led Zeppelin. That Ooh, John, yeah, and that roomy dude. It almost it almost has some of that roomy sound. Well, yeah, it yeah. does. It has a very roomy sound. Super simple drum beat. Nothing super complicated, really, when you're listening to this. But it's played with such feeling that you can't help but get entranced and really kind of sway and get yeah. into this beat. Yeah. And it's the way it's the way you record your mics, and it's the way you design the sound of your kit and everything. Which, by the way, the sound of Gavin's kit is so. It's, it's stupid. It's so it's great. Stupid. Um, it's stupid, dude. But on that topic of the parallels between Led Zeppelin and Porcupine Tree, when I said, "Oh, uh, I," I was telling Dustin, I was like, "Can you put something together for me, real quick?" I don't know. This is a, a really quick detour. My ashes on pork on on Fear of a Blank Planet is eerily similar to No Quarter by Led Zeppelin, and I just wanted to a b it just to give it next to each other here you go here you go this is no quarter Led Zeppelin this is my ashes it's just very similar keyboard sound this is called no ashes no ashes. Yeah, no, I, yeah, that's no the ashes. first thing I thought of when I heard my ashes. <laughs> I was like, this sounds just like no quarter. And maybe that's because I'm a yeah. big fan of Led Zeppelin, but also particularly that Led Zeppelin album, House of the Holy, fantastic album. Um, anyways, yeah, that's great. So, uh, so that's such a great, that's such a great moment. Oh my gosh. I, you know, I, I so think it, it makes sense that, um, I, I would feel that way about the, uh, the drum beat of going back to my Delvet moment in, in Sleep Together. Mm. Um, because Stephen Wilson said, I wanted the track sleep together, sound like nine inch nails with John Bonham of Led Zeppelin on drums and produced by massive attack. He says, uh, yeah, I wanted it to sound like nine inch nails with John Bonham on drums and produced by massive attack. I wanted all that combination together, dude, that yeah. sort of like trip hoppy kind of, I love massive attack, but that like trip hoppy stuff with the right. synths is totally there. And this is not, this is That's not so even, I, I know I've been glorifying, 
uh, uh, Gavin Harrison here, but also the bizarre ominous synthesizers in the background. Oh my gosh. So much suspense. Honestly, honestly, it's brilliant. Brilliant. I don't, I don't think, I don't think that drum beat would hit as hard if that synthesizer was going on. It absolutely would not. You had to have that as a precursor. You have to have that leading up to just this, you know, because you're like, where are you? And then what captures your attention? This really kind of out of nowhere bell and kick drum. And then, yeah, you have to have that thing to put you in this weird kind of suspenseful headspace. What's going to happen next? And then the drums come in. Oh, so good. Yeah. It's honestly like there's that, there's that sense of motion though. Like that's, that's really what makes it feel good. And when, when the drums are there and the keyboards going on to me is there's still this idea of like something moving. And because the drums is very, very simple. I mean, it's almost as simple as you can really get it in that, in that moment. But dude, it's so good. Total delve. Total Total delve. delve. All right. Your second delve. Okay, we've talked about this prior, but I every single time I went into like I went into it because I I absolutely love this part. This is uh, my ashes starting at three fifty five into the song. Oh, the strings. What a powerful moment of such of such a like a you know when you have that like prog metal thing going on and this is just so well put together like i i i love i love this moment specifically because the very first part of the song is dynamically extremely soft the first chorus of the song it has no drums in it it does have some of that string stuff but it's not built up to what it is here and this most of this chorus goes like this this b flat to a to g major 7 thing and then when he says distant sails it switches to this unbelievably beautiful chord progression that i love when he flips from this g major seven and then he goes to this f major seven d to a and i love that and the strings that go over it it just creates this sense of finality and it it just builds and the drums going on it gives me goosebumps every single time it switches to that it gives me goosebumps and then the highest note of the song which i think is this this high a that he sings on sails and it's like super kind of distant, almost like a distant sail. And it just feels so great with the strings. It's just a well, it's just well-written. It's just extremely yeah. well-written. And I, I love it because a lot of these albums are kind of like super in your, a lot of the moments on this record are super in your face. And I feel like this this moment in this song, and I wanted to include it because there are a billion Delve moments that I could go into, but I want to include this moment because it shows the, the differentiation between like, how heavy and dark it is, but I find this to be incredibly beautiful and organic. Yes. Yeah. And it's just it, like we were talking about before, how well they put those two things together and the melancholy and the darkness of it and stuff like that. It's not all depressing <laughs> is my point with this Delve moment is that this is just an incredibly beautiful piece and a sense of finality to it. It's a great song in my opinion. So Delve moment number two for me, for sure. So That's Delve fantastic. moment number three for you. 
You ready for this? Yeah, it's you, from, you have a precursor? It's from the title track. And that's Ooh. all I'm gonna say. Oh shoot. We it's just the beginning. It is. We opened up the episode with it. This is one of my favorite parts though. I love the computer keyboard sounds and the intermittent beeps. Yeah. Hard to explain why. I just really enjoy that. And the way it builds. We're going layer by layer. We're going acoustic guitar with an awesome riff. Awesome arpeggio. And then you've got this strong drum backbeat. You've got the little bell flourishes he does every now and then. And then, boom. This big Mellotron, right? And the, this overdriven bass, really big and forceful. So ominous, and it sets the tone for for the, the rest of the album perfectly. It, golly, man. So I know yeah, that's some of those... just the beginning, but that is a great beginning. And it's not like right out of the gate, like boom in your face, which those songs yeah, are yeah, awesome yeah. and fun too. Those are amazing. I love some of those songs. This one's really just, I love, the concept is the forefront of hmm. the record. And here it is, straight in your face, keyboards, someone had a keyboard typing. And mm -hmm. I, I love that as part of that. And I also love the riff coming out. And yeah, the way it just builds is great. The acoustic, and the drums come in. And we've got this really forceful Mellotron and bass. Yeah, dude, those, the bass on that, man, he just grooves it so hard. He yeah. grooves that stuff so, so hard. Man, I'll keep it short and just say that. I think it's a brilliant moment. It's fantastic, dude. Love that. Love that. All right, All right here three. we go. Here is my Delve moment number three, which is uh, I'm going to go. Uh, we're going to take it back to sleep together again, starting at five minutes and 20 seconds into the song. Oh, dude. The strings, once again. The strings are very nice. God, that bass groove is so great. It's so good, dude. It's so powerful here. It is. And how everything just... It's just the build, man. And it's so simple. It's so simple. But... I absolutely love this entire thing. It's just, yeah. it's one of those moments to me that it's just a, a great, just a great jam. Yeah, it's absolutely. Oh my gosh, man. There's really nothing much about it that I need to say other than the fact that it's just a head-banging moment, rocking out. The interesting soundscapes comes back from the very, from the intro that you really like from wah, your wah, Delph wah, moment wah, there. Wah, wah, and yeah. That string solo, in quotations, mm -hmm. that's going on there is, man, it's just phenomenal. And so I, I just love everything about that little section. Total groove, total jam, definite delve. So good. So good. So that is that is my, my last delve moment. Now, shelf moment for Drew. I had difficulties and we didn't we didn't do the the recordings for this 
So the recordings we yes. really did for the Delvet. Um, Shelve it. This was difficult for me because, to be honest, I might dub this. I haven't really thought critically, super critically about this, but I might say that this is a flawless album. I don't think there's part on here where I'm like, that doesn't fit. Everything is on here and it should be on here. So it's difficult to pick a shelf moment, but I'll be mm. honest. The chorus to my ashes just doesn't do it for me. I don't dislike it. It's a beautiful song. It's a really, really well composed song. But compared to a lot of the other tracks on the album, I'll be honest, that's a section where I'm not nearly as jazzed about is particularly the, the first chorus of my ashes. Yeah. And my ashes would... are na, na. It's a good it's a nice melody. It's very nice, but it just doesn't do it for me compared to something like Anesthetize or Way Out of Here or Sleep Together or anything like that. So Yeah. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on and you know, wow, shocker, Destin's gonna talk about a live version of the re- of the song again. But I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on the live version of the song because in the live version their backup vocalist John Wesley sings this and he has a more of a more of a tenor type of type of voice. Sure. Um I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that if it if it's uh maybe if more, it's the vocals or maybe, something. Yeah, maybe it's the vo- or maybe even the vocal tone or the effect right, or right. something like that. I'd be curious. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. Um we can do that off air though, of course. Yeah. But yeah, no, yeah, I get that. I think it's it's interesting you said that my ashes, my shelf moment is not really it's not really a a shelf moment in my opinion, but it's just I choose to skip it, and that is the last thirty seconds of my ashes. There is this weird kind of thing that's going on. It's sort of this not really uh I don't know exactly what it is. It kind of reminds me of the end of Lazarus where there's just kind of like twenty seconds of this train going by or something. And my ashes just kind of has that. It's just a little thing at the end of it, and it's not that I don't like it. It's not that it doesn't fit. It's not that it, it. It's not that it doesn't give that finality of my ashes room to breathe, so it flips into that. You know, anesthetized being the, the epic of of the record. But I usually skip it, and that's the only reason that I have. That's the only grounds that I have of saying that it's a shelf moment is because when it hits that at the end of the end of the track of my ashes, and it goes in that little section, I usually just hit the net because i want to get into the yeah. anesthetize so i just skip it that's well, really it it's uh it's interesting i i had talked about uh anesthetize being my favorite and it absolutely is i think a lot of people's oh, favorite yeah. is that i mean you know it depends obviously everyone has their own taste but a lot of people really enjoyed that night Stephen wilson was saying i personally prefer sleep together and way out of here and he says like a lot of people though are liking the big epic and he goes we didn't start out trying to make like this big you know 17 minute thing that was not like on our radar to do that at all it's just the way it worked out the way it worked out was ah this is still part of the same song for sure so we're going to continue to add on and it just it just kind of snowballed into what it was and it's funny because yeah he didn't you know he doesn't think of that as like the best piece on there because it's the longest or anything he actually prefers a lot of other tracks so i think it's just really interesting yeah, but. and I know that they broke up that piece. I know we haven't talked much about uh, much about anesthetize, um, but it is a three parter in terms of how how certain things are separated. I know that that second yeah. section that we've referenced to is is called the pills I'm taking, um, and uh, but the, it's it's yeah. There's a definite three part kind of thing to that track, and uh, 
and I yeah I mean I love all I love the whole thing and um, I don't know if I would I mean I guess I would prefer anesthetize maybe over sleep together and way out of here but I mean I can't really say that because I love them all kind of the exact same no, way. I, 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 yeah, I, I know. I don't really it's, have it's any a, grounds to say album. that one's better than the other one. Yeah. It's a, it's yeah. A, it's an awesome it's an awesome record. So, highly recommend everybody checking this checking this album out and uh, and really looking into the lyrics and even and, and and everything really, the music, the lyrics, all of it because it has an interesting concept. The music behind the concept is still extremely strong. It's not just all about the concept it's it's all great and so uh, but drew do you have any any last last no. thoughts or final final things i mean like there are a couple record? fun facts robert fripp did the soundscapes on way out of here robert fripp of king crimson just so you know yeah so. another another fun fact is that i think the uh the title track fear of a blank planet was featured in the end credits of a game called control that came out i believe two mm. years ago came out on on i think on playstation oh I also yeah think it got released. you know yeah. what it's I think the I have that. same company I think it was like a, do you really i haven't played it but i think i have it because they you know it was like a free game of the month or something for playstation plus or something like that i i think that's hilarious yeah I maybe think so that so the, maybe i've just uh, seen a review on it. it i don't know the, the yes, title know track is about. featured in the uh is it is featured in the ending credits and i think uh, i think that's also the same company that created quantum break if you remember that game which was a couple mm. of years prior i think um, people seem to know what that the name of that game, I believe, over the game control. But anyway, yeah, this is a little little fun fact. They made it into a video game. That's fun. Like 13, 14 years after the song came out. Yeah, that's kind of weird, but that's Something. yeah, funny. Pretty cool. Pretty cool to me. Yeah, yeah. that is cool. You know, anyway, so but either way, that's that's I think that's everything that we have to say about this record. We would like to thank everybody for listening to our podcast. These are our prog notes for Fear of a Blank Planet. If you learned anything from the episode enjoyed the episode please subscribe and share you can also go become a special prognotes patron at patreon.com slash prognotes you'll get all kinds of extra benefits outside of our monthly episodes and also come join our discord server which is a chat community for all prog rock fans and fans of the show all of these links will be found in the episode's description our patreon has all kinds of great things you can be a part of if you like i said at the beginning of the episode if you want to discover more progressive rock music connect with other progressive rock fans get early access to our material be able to have conversations with drew and i you will not be sorry for becoming a patron we have really enjoyed um, talking and chatting with all the people who really enjoy progressive rock music enjoy porcupine tree especially have a lot of porcupine tree and stephen wilson fans in our discord community so go join and check it out before we close drew what is the next record we're checking out on the show episode 40 episode 40 what are we looking at four zero uh it will be ocean by eloy german ocean rock group eloy and we've been doing a lot of like, modern yeah we've been doing a go lot ahead. of modern stuff and we we wanted to go back to to an earlier group and this was a record in the 70s and it's very nerdy like oh uh, yeah i i still have a lot of research to do on it uh, but just from looking at the titles of the tracks, like you can show, like, oh, these guys are uber nerds, which is great. Yep. So. It's going to be great. It'll be fun. So we're going to join us on episode 40 as we nerd out. Join us next time as we discover the past, present, and future of Prog Rock, and we'll see you guys on Discord. Thank you. <laughs>